money's great. It's necessary, but not sufficient, if you like. You need to have this whole network and infrastructure of people that know how to build, operate, scale these kind of businesses. Hello, and welcome back to Invisible Capital, a podcast on the private markets. I'm Alexander Davis, Editor-in-Chief of Pitchbook News. This week, we're wrapping up Season 4's weekly run with our colleague Andrew Woodman's interview of Ian Connody of British Patient Capital about the VC ecosystem in the United Kingdom. But fear not, loyal listeners, we will be publishing additional episodes to keep you informed with timely discussions and in-depth conversations about the private markets. To keep up with our podcasts, news, and analysis, you can visit pitchbook.com slash podcast for links to subscribe to The Daily Pitch, download our reports, and find webinars. Without further ado, let's go to Andrew's interview with Ian Connady of British Patient Capital. Ian Connerty, uh, Managing Director for Funds at British Patient Capital. Welcome to the Invisible Capital podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. So um, Ian, if you could tell us just a bit about British Patient Capital, stop me if I'm wrong, but you guys are a subsidiary of the British Business Bank, which is a state-owned economic development fund. And you guys were set up in 2018. So if you could tell us a bit about the genesis of the um, British Patient Capital and kind of how it came about and what its kind of remit is in, in the context of government policy. In terms of British patient capital, the story with us is is actually the UK has a pretty proud tradition of being one of the best places in the world to start a business. But once those businesses are established, actually quite a lot of them aren't able to fulfill their potential because of a lack of patient capital. It often means, as we'd seen in the past, that too many high growth potential businesses either grow more slowly or look abroad when, when they want to scale up, or, or the kind of refrain that you used to hear in venture capital in the UK, which is businesses getting sold too soon before they've really had a chance to blossom and become a business that's able to fulfill its potential on the global stage. So the government's patient capital review in 2017 really shone a light on this problem and warned that the UK was lagging behind the US in providing this kind of capital. And that was a serious impediment to the success of, of UK entrepreneurs. So as you said, British Patient Capital was established as a commercial entity within the BBB group. And our mission is to ensure that UK entrepreneurs who want to build successful world-class businesses have access to the type of funding that they need at the right time that helps them expand and scale up. So it's moving from a, an ecosystem that's historically been good at startups and helping it double down on, on the scale-up part of the journey in the hope to create more kind of breakthrough companies, if you like. So at BPC, we have a two and a half billion pound investment program. We invest that principally into funds as an LP, but also through co-investments as well. And our three major aims in doing that back to this underlying challenge that we're seeking to address is not only to increase the supply of capital, but also sort of make commercial returns as we do that. And therefore, thirdly, show that it can be done. And if you like, by talking, for example, on podcasts like this about what we're doing, try and encourage more institutional investors to think about making allocations to the asset class, because ultimately 
if we are in the UK and in Europe going to succeed in providing more capital to our best high growth companies, that capital has got to come from somewhere. And that we think is going to come from more institutional investors coming into this space and providing more long-term patient capital for growth. It's definitely something we've covered before. We've published articles about this, is this, this sort of gap in sort of funding for startups. So that, you know, that sort of post-Series A. And so what you're saying is traditionally it's been a case that the all of the UK startups and indeed European startups have gone to say have been acquired by larger companies before they've had the chance to scale. Do you feel that's changing? Because it feels like we have been, at least for the last couple of years, even you know, before the pandemic, I was writing about this, an inflection point where we're beginning to see more European startups being able to scale up. And we've had like IPOs coming up this year that we're talking about. Do you, do you feel there's a sense of change and there's, there's a lot more larger rounds coming down now through to sort of UK startups? I think that's right. And I think it was always a bit of a conundrum, if you like, that we're really good at science and innovation. And as I say, actually, the stats on starting companies are pretty good. So I think it's really great to see the ecosystem get more efficient, if you like, at turning more of those great startups into higher size companies. If you look back at the history of this, there was a real startup boom in Europe coming out of the last global financial crisis. There was kind of a lot of innovation. As it happened in the UK, for example, there was a lot of innovation in financial services, and that would go on to be, you know, form the kind of backbone of what we now call fintech, although it wasn't, wasn't even called that back then, right? So I think you, you had a startup boom you had at the same time, I think, more people, some people coming back from the valley, perhaps who made their career over there and come back with a sense of understanding either how to invest in or build companies. Because it's quite one thing having the capital to grow, but the other thing you also need is the knowledge of how to grow too, right? How do you, how do you take a business from 20 people to 50 people to 250 people to 1,000 people and beyond? You know, that, that in itself is a kind of core capability. So it, it feels like it was a a kind of mixture of all of these different factors, some of it outside the system in terms of just the world at large and technology and innovation, but some of it quite intentional in terms of government policy, for example, encouraging more startups, all coming together all at the same time. And so I think as an outsider, perhaps it feels quite sudden, right? As you said, it feels like in the last couple of years, there's suddenly been this step change, but, but in a sense, that's not an overnight success at all. It's been a decade in the making of these companies starting to come through the ecosystem. And only really now, I think, are you seeing the fruits of all of that labor? FinTech obviously has been a big part of this story. A lot of our big startup successes in the UK have been kind of either challenger banks or other kind of fintech-focused startups. I think this year we saw Bought by Many, which is an insurance startup, they reached kind of unicorn status. And then we've got challenger banks like Monzo and Revolut. And why is it the UK has been, I mean, a leader in fintech? I mean, not just in Europe, but, you know, globally to some extent, it's been a, in a leader in that kind of area of innovation. What do you think has been the driver for that? If you step back a bit from venture and technology, just in terms of the structure of the UK economy, we're a world leader in financial services. So there's a kind of ecosystem here of operators who understand the industry of potential customers, and those customers have pain points and challenges. And as I said, if you go right back to the start of the previous decade, sort of 2009, 10, 11, you know, we have companies in our portfolio that we now call fintech businesses, but at the time were just technology businesses. And in a sense, what happened was that they were in the end, they ended up applying their technology to the financial services industry, or they got real traction in those kinds of areas. 
And so you put all of that together into a melting pot, this innovation and technology change and customers and know-how. And I think that's how you you end up with us sort of punching above our weight, if you like, in terms of fintech. It's interesting as well, when we talk about how things have kind of evolved for the kind of the venture capital and startup scene in the UK, that it doesn't seem to have been hampered as much as we would have expected by, I suppose, the two major headwinds being Brexit and more recently the pandemic. Why do you think that is? Or do you think that there's still an impact to be had by those two things? Or do, do you think that they have really had much of an impact at all? Taking them in order, I think Brexit, I think it's too soon and it's, it's really hard to tell because there is so much going on in the market right now, Re- record amounts of deployment into companies. Um, you have pretty good statistics on, on your fundraising for UK-based managers, for example. So that story, such as it is, I think perhaps will play out over time. For me, certainly for where we sit, the more immediate impact has been COVID, actually, of those two. I think undoubtedly for some businesses, it has been a headwind, as you say, but I would probably flip it around and say, in general terms, in terms of the opportunity that we're seeing in our portfolio, what's really interesting are the businesses that have a COVID tailwind, actually, you know, so so where they're feeding into some kind of trend that was probably there before, but has been accentuated by everything that's happened as a result of COVID. So for example, working collaboratively or working remotely like we are now, you know, that sort of thing. All the video conferencing facilities were there before, but there's a real demand for them now that wasn't there before. Telemedicine, digitization of products and services. You talked about fintech payments, for example, you know, so people shopping online. So it's it's not as if this stuff wasn't around before, but its adoption, if you like, has really been accelerated by the pandemic and the changes to the way that we live, the way we work, the way we shop, the way we engage with healthcare providers, all, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's, in some senses, back to your question of, you know, what why the last two years does it feel like so much has happened? Actually, I do think that COVID is probably part of that, actually. It's a good opportunity to segue. You mentioned healthcare and, and medical sort of focused startups. Life sciences is an area where British patient capital is looking to become more active, is being more active. Um, we had news uh, in July of British patient capital launching its life sciences investment program. Uh, if you could tell us a bit about that and the kind of the thinking behind that and why that's important. Yeah. So, so life sciences for us has always been an important part of how we think about the market, not just technology. We think there's really interesting opportunities actually in the intersection as well of what's traditionally been called life sciences and technology, for example, in, in things like AI meets drug discovery, that kind of thing. But the specific purpose of the life sciences investment program is really to focus on the provision of later stage capital again, which is what BPC is all about, but very specifically for these high potential life sciences companies where there's a real dearth of later stage patient scale-up capital that helps these companies realize their potential. And hopefully, as a result of that, if they're able to raise that capital here in the UK, retaining their center of gravity here as well, rather than having to consider going somewhere else to, to kind of for their next phase of their journey too. Generally speaking, just about later stage companies going elsewhere, obviously it's good for the companies to stay in the UK, uh, list in the UK. We've got IPOs coming up this year. We had Deliveroo which didn't go so great, but is there still a concern that 
that there will be UK companies that are still going to list overseas or still see US as kind of the sort of primary goal for going public. Do you feel that's changing with the reforms as well, the listing reforms? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a few issues to that. One is where the center of gravity of the business is, which may or may not be where it's listed. So that in a sense, that's one, where, where are the core operations and where, you know, all that kind of stuff. In terms of the kind of listed piece, again, that's another aspect of access to capital for the next phase of its journey. Where does that money come from? And I think that's a really interesting question. So you're right, the Hill Review in the UK, you know, has been looking at what what regulatory changes or impediments could there be such that the UK becomes a more favorable environment for companies listing. But I think in a sense, that's not the end of it because you have also all the infrastructure that sits that sits around that in terms of the capability, for example, of analysts and brokers and bankers and all that kind of stuff, all the ecosystem of finance know-how that also enables companies to be able to access capital from the public markets too. And, and I think that a bit like we've seen in the in the private markets where Europe has, as we've just discussed, sort of gone on this journey over the last decade or so in terms of capability, I think there's probably something there too around the public market side of that equation. Going back to sort of the idea as well of the ecosystem maturing and investing later staging companies, I, I noticed looking at the, uh, the data we've got on the PitchBook platform just about where you guys have been committing your money. Recently, you've made a commitment to Borders and Capital's inaugural growth fund. And last year, you made commitments to, to Kedit's uh, fifth fund. And I was, I was curious to know, I mean, are, are you looking now as the ecosystem matures, are you, are you making more commitments to funds that are more focused on these later stage sort of VC stroke growth stage uh, businesses? And do you see that being more where the opportunity is? That's where our mission is focused. So, so in terms of uh, what we call venture growth, which is typically Series B and later, that's where we deploy the majority of our capital. We we also deploy at earlier stage, but as I say, we are focused on that later stage, and we see that provision of capital there either by earlier stage managers moving later, or by helping existing growth managers sort of scale up or new entrants sort of stepping down, if you like, or from elsewhere into that market, helping to fill out the matrix of provision. Because perhaps one of the things we've not covered so far, what's kind of interesting about the later stage market is just how much capital comes from non-domestic sources and even outside of Europe, actually. So we see that as a, as kind of evidence, if you like, of the opportunity for there to be you know, more domestic supply of, of this kind of, of later stage scale-up capital. So, so yeah, we are very active in that part of the market. So did you see that? I mean, because you've still obviously got allocations to early stage funds, Dawn Capital, Kindred Capital. Do you see the growth element becoming a larger piece of that allocation pie? Or do you sort of see to sort of maintain it as sort of, say, predominantly early stage with some growth stage? I think you know you can't neglect the early stage market because that that's effectively the long term pipeline for the later stage, right? But as I say, the balance of our capital now is deployed primarily at this later stage part of the market. So yeah, we continue to be active from pre seed all the way through to growth, but we are more focused on this yes, kind of Series B and later part of the market. I'd expect as well, like the market matures a lot of these VCs in the UK at least, and you do obviously you don't just invest exclusively in the UK, but predominantly in the UK, right? And you do some European 
investments too. But a lot of these these fund managers, these VCs, as they as they grow and mature and get into later iterations of their funds, they're going to be bigger funds and there's going to be bigger ticket sizes. As time goes on, do you see addressing that kind of growth? Do you see British patient capital having fewer sort of man- manager relationships or have a, a larger allocation to funds? How, how do you kind of adjust your, say, ticket size as funds get bigger and mature? And it's a really interesting question, actually, and it sort of touches on the evolution of the market, if you like. So first of all, there's only so many GPs that can raise larger sums of money. So, so in a sense, there are more managers that can raise you know, 50 than can raise 100 than can raise 200 and so on. So in a sense, as you move up the size spectrum, the number of credible GPs that can actually raise that kind of capital reduces. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is what that dynamic does actually is it leaves a gap. It leaves a, an air pocket a fund might start off with a fund of a couple of hundred million, let's say, and then they raise 350, 400 in their next one, 600, and then up and up and up, right? So as they move up in size and scale, who's doing those smaller deals that that fund used to do, right? So, so that's one of the really interesting dynamics about this, I think, is you end up almost with two different kind of theses, if you like, as an LP, when those dynamics are happening. You know, which GPs do you think can raise fund after fund after fund and raise not necessarily increasing amounts of capital, but can raise at scale because most strategies have some kind of ceiling beyond which it doesn't make sense to grow anymore, right? You know, you can't grow your fund fund size into the sky. But what that does as they as they do make that shift is it leaves, as I say, these gaps and opportunities perhaps for smaller managers looking at slightly different kinds of transactions. And I think that's a kind of interesting part of the market as well, actually. When you seek to commit to these funds, do you, do you often look to be the anchor investor? Sometimes with the anchor investor, for sure. And sometimes we're just a member of a syndicate, just like anybody else. I, I think for us, what's really important is to make sure that the investments that we make really chime with that mission to help bring more of this kind of later stage patient capital to bear in the market and how we help address and fix that long-term issue. But you've always got that sense of, does this make sense in the context of what our mission is? Does it make sense in the context of our portfolio and how we'd like to construct it and how we're trying to diversify it across different vintages, for example, different sectors and manager types and so on. And when you look to invest, do you seek out co-investment opportunities? I mean, you have done direct investments. And why is that important? Because I assume that your number one kind of aim is to, is to build the ecosystem over, say, for example, a typical LP pension fund that would look to sort of get better returns for their pensioners. What's the kind of driving incentive behind that for you to to look for those direct and co-investment opportunities? Whilst we have this kind of mission, if you like, which is around wanting to see a step change in the provision of later stage capital to the ecosystem, we see that as complementary and actually underpinning the commercial return piece. That was our investment thesis, if you like. That's where we saw the opportunity. So, So I think in that sense, we're no different to any other commercial investor, if you like. We're trying to optimize for returns, but we're investing to a a kind of mission and a thesis. In terms of co-investment specifically, actually, if you've spoken to LPs in the past, one of the challenges you have is at the fund of funds level, you can end up over-diversified if you're not careful. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of companies in our portfolio across lots of different funds. So if we have, you know, a winner in there, you know, how do we make sure that we can manage our exposure to that company, right? So that's what co-investment helps us do. And it helps us fulfill our mission because obviously this is a company that's hopefully on its way to fulfilling its potential and putting more capital behind known winners really helps. 
And then again, as NELP will tell you, it helps you to manage the kind of fee burden as well. So for us, it, it helps across the return dimension and it helps our mission in terms of concentrating capital, if you like, behind emerging winners in the portfolio and emerging UK winners as well, which, which is important for us to kind of have that UK anchor to the portfolio, given where our capital comes from. Do you see that kind of with more companies, you know, getting scale and, and also feeding back through these exits, feeding back into the ecosystem on a kind of human resources level, on a talent level, are you seeing that kind of virtuous circle where you're seeing more sort of UK startup talent seeding the next generation of startups um, in the same way that we've had in the US, we've had like the PayPal mafia, they, as they call them, you know, who, you know, people like Elon Musk who have sort of funded the next generation. Are, are you seeing that in the UK? I mean, certainly we've seen it in Europe with some of the European big companies like sort of Skype or Spotify. Are we seeing that in the UK? Or is that something that's still to come? Because you did mention actually previously of people going to the US and coming back. But is it something we're seeing in the UK as well? Yeah, I, for me, that's the most exciting part. Actually, the beginning to see that what you're describing there is a kind of flywheel effect, right? Where you have success breeding more success as people, back to one of the points I made right at the start, money's great. It's necessary, but not sufficient, if you like. You need to have this whole network and infrastructure of people that know how to build, operate, scale these kind of businesses. So seeing talent go on a journey and then potentially earn significant money, recycle that money into angel investments or join another startup at a relatively early stage and recycle their knowledge and talent and skills into doing it all over again. I think that's really great. And we are starting to see that in the UK. And it builds this kind of virtuous circle where the kind of collective knowledge, experience and wisdom just keeps improving and improving and improving. And, and we see that's true of the kind of investors, the GPs that we're backing, but potentially also the founders and operators that they're working with too. So, so I think in terms of the fundamentals of the ecosystem, I think that's probably one of the most exciting things, actually. In terms of how that ecosystem will expand beyond its borders, do you see the, the future of kind of UK VCs, companies expanding into and trading more, say, beyond the EU or within the EU? I mean, how does Brexit play into that kind of when you're looking at how these startups go beyond the UK and expand outwards? First of all, actually, it's probably worth saying that, you know, there are some really great businesses that are not unicorns and never going to be. And that's absolutely fine. You know, like so you're really great businesses that will be fantastic returns for their investors and do pretty well that don't need to expand internationally or, or don't need to reach anywhere near that kind of scale to be successful. Even in that kind of billion dollar plus type of category, you can still have a national champion that's worth, you know, a lot of money. And we saw that, for example, you know, like real estate and, and things like that, you know, so you had, you know, national champions in, in the UK and potentially other countries sort of emerging. So again, you don't need to conquer the globe to be worth a lot of money. And for other businesses, they're about becoming global category leaders. You know, they're, in a, they're operating in a more global environment, a more global market where it might be not quite winner takes all, but first to scale maybe, or where scale is important. And that's a very different outcome and a very different journey and a very different trajectory. So, so that's where I think that know-how of those tactical and strategic decisions and when, for example, to expand to the US or other territories and geographies, I think is incredibly important. And where we talked just before about that kind of collective wisdom and know-how, these kinds of decisions, I think are one of the examples where having experience around the table can be incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for uh, giving your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Invisible Capital. For show notes and links to relevant reports and articles, you can visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. I'm Alexander Davis. Until next time. Invisible Capital is a production of PitchBook. Executive produced by Kai Yao. Hosted by Alexander Davis. Additional production and editing support by Jen Germain, Allison Sharoni, Brian Hoyson, and Kate Rainey. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast.